So if today's your first day with us, or if you're just joining us for the first time in a while, we are wrapping up this series, and I want to put you at ease right off the bat. This is not a political series. Don't let the bumper fool you. We're not jumping into any of that. That's not been the point. But this is a series where we have been trying to very honestly address a couple of things. One, uh, the role that those of us who are followers of Jesus have played over the course of the last several decades in the divisiveness that, and the tension that exists in our country. And then more importantly, what responsibility do we have as we're moving forward to create a more united or a reunited States of America? And specifically, it's hard to think about you know, our entire country, but in our communities, in our relationships, in the environments in which we live from day to day, what can we do and what should we do in order to create a better sense of unity rather than division. And I think those of us who are followers of Jesus carry a huge responsibility in that. And part of the reason is because our leader and our Savior came with a message that was built around the idea of unity and oneness. And if he modeled for us exactly what this looks like, and so if we take seriously following him, then we have to learn how to practice these things as well. So there are a lot of things that we disagree on. There are a lot of things that uh, we don't see eye to eye on simply because we live in a country that's so diverse, and that's not a bad thing. That's a phenomenal thing. That's part of what makes us so great and so strong. We're in a church where there's a lot of diversity in terms of thought and opinion and belief that we don't see eye to eye on everything. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But there is one thing I've said throughout this series that I think we can all come to grips with and we can all agree on. And it's a simple idea that what's best for people is what's best. In other words, we don't always do it, but we can all agree that we should be doing whatever is best for people. We may not agree on what's best for people. We don't always agree on how to get there, the right uh, policies or paths or the right principles or the right beliefs. Like We disagree on a lot of that. But I think we can all agree that what we should be doing is all making decisions based on what is best for people. We may disagree on how, but we should at least agree on the what, on the, on the why, on the whole reason we should be making the decisions that we're making. And one of the things that I have suggested, and I think we could all agree is true, about what's best for people is for us to learn how to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This is what James, a brother of Jesus, instructed us to do. He said, when you're in situations where uh, there's tension, where there's division, you should learn how to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And we are the exact opposite today, aren't we? It seems like the majority of people we run into, ourselves included, have a tendency to be very slow to listen. We are very quick to speak, and we are very quick to be angry, and we are very quick to come to conclusions that I'm right and you're wrong, and you know, I'm going to make my point, and I'm going to try to convince you that you should get on board with me in the way I'm thinking, and you should come around to the way I see it. Instead of pausing and learning how to sit across a table from somebody who views something differently than us, 
and learn from them. Instead of learning the art of sitting down and having a conversation and listening more than we speak, because listening communicates uh, not just empathy, listening communicates dignity and value and respect and self-worth. Dignity, or listening communicates a lot of positive things to the other person. And if we could just learn to sit down and begin to have more conversations where we stop and we listen and we try to see things from the perspective and the point of view of the other person, it would make a world of difference in our relationships. It would make a world of difference in our communities. And those of us who are followers of Jesus, I just feel like we have a responsibility to lead the way in this and to break down some barriers and to begin to build some bridges. Now, that does not mean when you're sitting and listening to somebody that you respect you know, every opinion you hear. That's not the case. But you should respect all the people that you sit across from, even if you don't respect their opinion. It doesn't mean every opinion you hear is equally valid. That's just illogical and irrational. Every opinion, you know, every perspective cannot be equally valid. But every person that you interact with is equally valuable. And the way we interact with people with whom we disagree, we should do it in such a way that we walk away and we have communicated just by the way we respected and treated them. That even though we may not agree on a topic, we find you as valuable as anybody else we've interacted with. We should walk away with them knowing that we see them as a person who has dignity and value and worth equal to anybody else who may agree with us or who may be, quote, unquote, on our side. So that being said, here's what I want to do to wrap up today. This is going to be really, really practical. And if you haven't been with us for the series, that's okay. Today's, I think, will be incredibly helpful for you, and you can take this and run with it. You don't have to have the context. What I want to do today is simply this. I want to talk in really practical terms about what it looks like to create or to foster unity. And you can think about this at a national level. You can think about it at a community level. But you can also think about it at a very personal level. What does it take to foster unity in that relationship with someone in your family where there's tension? Well, what does it take to foster or create unity in a situation at work or situation at school where there's just a lot of division at the moment? What's it look like to foster unity, you know, with that individual where every time you see them, there's just, ah, you just always don't, you know, have a little bit of something there. You don't see eye to eye. You don't really want to have, sit down and have conversations. What's it look like for those of us who are followers of Jesus in particular to foster unity in those situations? Here's what we tend to do. And if you're anything like me, you, you just find yourself naturally defaulting to this. What we tend to do when we think about that question is think, well, if they would just change... This is our natural default. If they would just change, if they would just, if they would just, if they would just, then the problem would be solved. If they would just, then everything would get better. If they just come around and see it my way, if they just admit they're part of the problem, if they just acknowledge that they did that and they shouldn't have done that and they're contributing to this, if they would just fix the one thing we've asked them to fix or you know, do the one thing we asked them to do a little bit differently, if they, if they would just change and everything would be better. When you pull out and you look at it from a national standpoint, we see this all the time. If you're a big Democrat, any big Democrat, when you ask them this question, will say, well, if we could just gain power instead of the Republicans in this area or this area, or if those Republicans would just change the way they're approaching this, and then you talk to Republicans, and, you know, shockingly enough, it's the exact opposite, right? It's just, hey, if we could have more power here and here, and if the Democrats would just change what they're doing, pointing fingers, it's like it's become a national pastime, but pointing fingers brings no progress. Pointing fingers has never led to unity, and you know this in your own life, and I know this in my own life, but it's so much easier to do. It's just easier to say, if they would, if they would, if they would, if they would, and point the finger at somebody else. But here is the truth that none of us want to acknowledge or admit. I personally have done more to undermine my own growth, 
my own success, my own dreams, and my own happiness than anyone else I know. As a matter of fact, this is a little embarrassing to admit, but I trust you guys, so I'm going to admit it to you. I have participated in every bad decision I've ever made. It's awful, isn't it? It's just you read that and you think, um, I wrote that, and I thought, oh my goodness, how, how embarrassing and how dumb of me. I have participated, I have been present for every single bad decision I've ever made. Every bad career decision, every bad leadership decision, every bad financial decision, every bad, you know, impromptu, impulsive purchase, and you go on Amazon to get the thing, and then it says, customers who bought this also like, and the next thing you know, you got a cart full of stuff, you know, you've been down that road before. Every, every bad decision in terms of parenting, every bad marriage decision, all those, I should probably clarify, not who I married, that was a great decision. But within the marriage, any bad decision, I've been, I've been present for every bad decision, every uh, bad relational decision, every time I chose to gossip, every time I chose to lose my temper, every time I you know, chose to be selfish instead of selfless. We could go on and on. You get the picture. I have participated in every single bad decision that I have ever made. And it's easy to point the finger and say, yeah, but if they would have, and if they, and if they, and if they. But there's only one common denominator in all of my bad decisions, and it's me. Now... That is a little embarrassing to admit, but I don't mind doing it because I know you're not any better than I am. You have participated in every bad decision you've ever made, haven't you? Every single one of them. Every single one of them. And here's the thing. The biggest challenge that we have, and none of us want to acknowledge this, but the biggest challenge that we currently have in our country is not any politician or group of politicians. The biggest challenge we have in our country, it's not, or in your life, for you, or in my life, for me, is not, well, the boss, and if that boss would just, or, well, if my employees would just, or if my team would just, or if my parents would just, or if my kids would just, no, no, no. The biggest challenge that you and I have every single day is the American that we look at in the mirror when we wake up every morning. That is our greatest challenge. How do I lead that American that I'm looking out in the mirror who has been present for every bad decision that I have ever made? What does it look like to lead yourself and lead myself in such a way that you're able to change you and I'm able to change me and we stop pointing fingers and blaming and we start owning and taking responsibility for our part of the problem? That's the challenge that we have and that's the challenge I want us to wrap up by talking about for a few minutes today because we can go through this series and we can talk about all of these ideas and we can all agree, yeah, I wish everybody was quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. Everybody needs to practice that more. I wish people would stop posting so much stuff on social media and just having these rants or, you know, all these positions that are so controversial. I mean, we can point to all of that stuff. But the reality is you have a hard time when you're in the middle of a situation being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. And I have a hard time being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. It's easy to talk about on Sunday. It's very difficult to do when somebody ticks you off or somebody treats you in a way that seems unfair or somebody is pushing or promoting a position that you just think is wrong and harmful. So what's it look like? Not to change the people around us. What's it look like? to lead the American in the mirror, because if you could lead you better and I could lead me better, our communities would, by default, get better as well. Well, interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul gave us some direction and some instruction on how to do this. If you don't know much about his backstory, I just find Paul to be fascinating, because here was a guy, you can read about this, here was a guy who absolutely hated Christians until he became one. 
He was devoted, he'd given his entire life, his entire career, to hunting down these followers of Jesus, they didn't call them Christians at the time, to hunting down these followers of Jesus who were messing with and destroying the religion he had devoted himself to, Judaism. Talk about division. There was extraordinary division in Israel at that time. There's division, you know, between the Romans and the Jews, but then there was religious division that was uh, existing to the point that Paul would hunt these Jesus followers down. He'd either throw them in prison or he'd persecute them, or in some cases he would have them killed. And then he has this extraordinary encounter with Jesus himself after the resurrection. And Paul goes, oh my gosh, I think I got it wrong. I'm going to change directions. And he spends the rest of his life spreading the central core message that Jesus came to deliver. And in a letter to a group of Christians in Galatia, Paul writes about this central message. And in the middle of this, he begins to unpack for us what it looks like to lead ourselves well, to lead ourselves in such a way that we are the people we need to be in order to make our communities the places that we want them to be. So I just want to read this for you, and then I want to give you three very practical decisions that you and I could make that I think would make a world of difference to create a reunited States of America. Here's what Paul wrote, first of all, to the Galatians. He said, you, my brothers and sisters, he was talking to uh, fellow followers of Jesus, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Now, he is referring to one of Jesus' most famous statements, and whether you're a Jesus follower or not, Christian or not, whether you're a church person or not, you, you've heard this statement. You may not know Jesus said it. You may have heard politicians say it, you, but you've heard this at different points. One time Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And that was something that all of Jesus' followers knew. They understood this principle that he taught, and Paul is referring back to that going, you know what? The truth is extraordinarily powerful. Jesus called you to follow him because he wanted you to be free. Free in what sense? Well, not free in the sense of free from Roman control. Paul would say he wants you to be free from all the stuff inside of you that keeps derailing and sabotaging your ability to be who God created you to be. All the stuff that when you look in the mirror in your most honest moments, you go, oh yeah, there's some stuff in there. Oh yeah, I don't know why I can't change that. I don't know why I keep losing my temper. I don't know why I continue to make selfish choices. I don't know why I keep treating them that way. I don't know why I can't control my tongue. I don't know why I can't just shut my mouth. I don't know why, I don't know why, I don't know why. Paul says all that stuff that's in you that you don't want to admit and you tend to explain away to other people, but deep down inside you know it's a problem. Paul says Jesus invites you to follow him because he wants to set you free from all that so you can be who God created you to be. And the first step to being free is being honest with yourself. It's, it's owning the truth of who you are. Now, the exact opposite is also true. Truth frees you. Dishonesty imprisons you. This is important to understand. If you don't learn to look in the mirror and lead that person in the mirror, if you can't look in the mirror and own the stuff that's rattling around inside of you and own the decisions you made and own the choices you made, that are creating issues, if you can't look in the mirror and own your part of the problem, and we all go, but I'm not the major part of the problem, I know, but you just, you own your part. You own the, the 40%, the 20%, the 5%, whatever little slice of that pie you're willing to own. If you're not willing to own your part of the problem, Paul says, your self-deception is going to sabotage your future. Your self-deception will sabotage your future success, your future growth, and your ability to be who you most want to be and who God created you to be. Now, you know this, because in your most honest moments, you're like me. You look in the mirror and you realize, not only do I not live up to the standards God has set, I don't even live up to my own standards. I can't even live up to being the person that I want to be. I do things that I'm not even proud of. 
What is that? What's stuff that's rattling around inside of you that you can't fix in you and I can't fix in me? And Paul says, Jesus came to help address that stuff, address the mess in your heart. But in order for that mess to be addressed, you can't deceive yourself. You can't keep making excuses about, well, this is why I did it and it's okay in this case because. Because dishonesty will imprison you. But the truth will set you free. And Jesus came for you to be free to be who God created you to be. And then Paul goes on and explains why this is such a big deal to you and me. He says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. That's just a way of saying don't use your freedom for your own benefit. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And then he refers to something else Jesus said. For the entire law. Now he's referring to the law of Moses. And the the Jewish people would have understood this. He's referring to all the different laws they had of how they were supposed to interact with one another and how they were supposed to operate as a country. Paul says it, it was complicated, but it doesn't need to be complicated. Jesus came and he simplified it all. For the entire law can be summed up in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, okay, Jesus invites you to follow him because he wants to do something inside of you that you want done, you just can't get it done on your own. But the whole point of freeing you to be who God created you to be is not so you're free to do whatever you want to do. The whole point of extending grace and forgiveness to you so you don't carry around guilt and shame for past regrets and past sins and past mistakes is not so you go, oh, I got a, I got a get out of jail free card. Now I can just, I'm forgiven so I can do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me. He says, no, that's not the point. Jesus does everything he does in you to help you become the kind of person who can serve one another humbly and love. Or another way to put it, who can love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Now this is extremely important for the concept we're talking about for this simple reason. That serving one another opens the door to unity with one another. This is what makes this so extraordinary. When you and I get to a point where selflessness trumps selfishness in our hearts, when we can, of our own free will, of our own free choice, choose to, with a good attitude and with a loving heart, serve the people around us, Paul says something extraordinary will happen. Serving one another will open the door. It doesn't guarantee it, but it will open the door to unity with one another. Now, you know this because you've experienced it in your life. You've experienced what it's like to have a friend, to have a family member, to have a spouse, to have someone that you care about. And because of your love and your care for them, you would go out of your way to serve them. And what did it do? It did not drive you further apart. It brought you closer together. It created, to use our terminology, a deeper, stronger sense and bond of unity between the two of you. That's what it did. Your relationship didn't drift. Your relationship got closer. Well, Paul says that doesn't just apply to people you like. That applies to all people. In other words, if you think and if I think about the people who we disagree with, who we differ from, you think about the people that you consider to be difficult people. Paul says, you know what you should do if you're a follower of Jesus? If you're not, this will work for you, but it's optional. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, Paul says, you know what you ought to do? You ought to lean in, not lean away from those difficult people. You ought to look for opportunities to serve the people you find difficult in your life. You say, well, they're not going to want anything to do with that. It's not going to change them. Paul says, well, that's not the point. The point is not you changing them because that's out of your control. The point is you opening the door and the possibility to unity with those people who you currently find difficult. And the only way you can open that door is to serve them humbly in love. 
The people who, and this is a strong word, and we don't like to use this a lot, but the people who you'd consider to be your enemies. The people, people who you just don't want anything to do with them. The people who, if you had a chance to help them, boy, you would wrestle really hard with taking that opportunity to help them. Paul says, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, what you ought to do, if you're going to follow his example, you lean in. And you take that opportunity to serve them humbly in love because that is what our leader did for us. And that is what opens the door to unity with one another. It is exactly what Jesus did. It's the whole point of him coming to this earth. There was a rift. There was a barrier between us and God. But instead of leaning away, God decided to lean in. He showed up in the person of Jesus. And he served the very people who had rebelled against him. He served the very people who wanted nothing to do with him. He served the very people who had offended him. To open a door for there to be unity. To open a door for there to be forgiveness. To open a door and create a path for restoration. Paul says, this is what your responsibility and mine is, those of us who are Jesus followers. It's to serve one another, even the one another's you don't really want to serve. Because it opens the door to the possibility of unity between one another. You say, well, I don't really want to do that, Matt. I'm with you. I get that. But if you don't go down that path, there's only one other path you go down, and it doesn't lead to the kind of future you want. Here's how Paul put it. He went on, he said, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. I don't even have to explain to you or try to convince you this is true because we're seeing this in our nation over and over again. You're probably seeing it in your life in some relationship right now with two people that you're watching and they just, it's constant criticism, it's constant attack, it's constant hate. And that, that path never leads, the blaming, the criticizing, the attacking, never leads to the future we want. When I run into people who are like, I just don't want to forgive, I just don't want to serve, I just don't want to love, I'd say, okay, well, take the route you're taking, take the approach that you've chosen. Let me ask you something. How's that working out for you? Is it leading to more joy in your life or less? Is it leading to more peace or less? Is it leading to a better life or a more discontent life? I mean, it never works. It never works. And Paul knew that. So he said, you got two options. There are really only two options. You can continue to blame and point fingers and attack and criticize, but you are self-sabotaging your own future, your own growth, and your own success. You are undermining your ability to, to experience the very life that you most want to experience. Or you can make the choice to follow the example of your leader and to serve one another, even the one another's you disagree with, humbly in love. And see what that does to open the door to unity with one another. So here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I want to give you three very, very practical decisions that I think you and I, if we would make them, would make a world of difference in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our communities. And if enough of just those of us who are Jesus followers made these decisions, it'd make a world of difference in our country. If we would just commit to these three things, it could create an entirely different culture and climate. Wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we go. So let me walk you through these for the next few minutes. And I want to encourage you to think about what it would look like for you to own these and to live these out over the course of the next year. Here's the first one. Decision number one. I will not lie to myself even when the truth makes me feel bad about myself. Imagine if we all made that decision. 
okay, when I'm in the middle of a, a conflict or I'm in the middle of a situation or I'm making decisions and, you know, making choices that really aren't healthy and in my best interest, imagine if we all were committed to saying, okay, I'm just not going to lie to myself about what's really going on inside of me, even though it may make me feel bad about myself to admit what's going on in me and to admit why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, we don't hear this message a lot in our culture today, but you do realize there is something much worse than feeling bad about yourself. It is not addressing what's bad in yourself. That's a lot worse than feeling bad about yourself. When you don't address what's bad in yourself, then you can never change, and you're self-sabotaging your own future. Sometimes, the best thing to do is to not lie to yourself, to own the truth about yourself. And in the process, yeah, you're going to feel bad about yourself for a little while, but that's going to lead to change and that's going to lead to growth. That's much better than the alternative. That's much better than self-deception. So the question becomes, well, how do you do that? Because we all have an extraordinary ability to deceive ourselves. Have you noticed this about yourself? You have an incredible, incredible capacity to deceive yourself, and so do I. This is why we have all watched friends of ours make decisions. And the minute they started talking about it, we knew that's a terrible idea. Why would you ever do that? That's never going to work out. They made the decision, and we predicted exactly what was going to happen. Now, we probably didn't tell them because we didn't love them enough to tell them. We didn't want to hurt their feelings, you know, whatever your reasoning was. But all the rest of us who are friends of that person, we all talk behind the scenes. and are like, that's not going to work out. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to fall right on their face. And then they fell right on their face, and we looked at them and said, well, what would you expect? We all knew that was going to happen. We, we've all seen this, right? Why, can, why do we have crystal clear clarity into the stupid decisions of our friends but we can turn around and make stupid decisions and act like we never saw it coming. Because we have an extraordinary ability to deceive ourselves and convince ourselves that we are doing something for a reason other than the real reason. We have all done this when it comes to a purchase, haven't we? We've all done this when it comes to, well, I can afford that because and even though, and you know, we've all done this. So how do you make sure that you cut through this, which is such a powerful pull to deceive yourself, how can you cut through all that and make sure you don't lie to yourself. I'm going to give you a question. It's a very simple question, but I've found this to be an incredible tool to use to help me see when I am trying to lie to myself. The question is simply this. Why do I want to do this? And then you've got to add this word, really. Why do I want to do this, really? Not why do I want to do this, because I, that's the answer that we give all the other people who say, why are you doing that? Well, and we come up with really good answers, and we can spin it and make it sound good. Not that answer. you got to ask yourself, why do I want to do this really? Not what I'm telling other people, but what's really going on inside of me? Now, this is, a very, um, this is a very powerful question. It's a much better question than the question most of us ask ourselves. What most of us do is we make the decision, and then on the backside of that decision, we say, why did I do that? You've asked yourself that, haven't you? I don't know. Why did I do that? Okay, well, that's good to self-reflect and to learn from your experience, but It'd be much better on the front end just to say, well, before I make this decision, let me just be honest with myself. Why do I want to do this really? Why do I want to be in that relationship? Why do I want to buy that? Why do I want to rent that? Why do I want to uh, sell that? Why do I want to go there? Why do I want to take that trip? Why do I want to do that with my money? Why do I want to work there? Why do I want to leave there? Why do I want to get out of this relationship? Why do I want to move? Why do I want to say that? Why do I not want to say that? Why am I trying to avoid this person? Like, why do I want to do that? 
really? If you would just ask yourself that question, push aside all the stuff you're telling everybody else, if you would just ask yourself that question and own the answer, even if you don't change your decision, at least you're not lying to yourself anymore. At least you're acknowledging the real reason that I'm going there, the real reason I'm getting out of this relationship, the real reason I'm purchasing that, the real reason I'm choosing to try to do that, the real reason that I'm going in that direction. You, you at least owe it to yourself to be honest about, okay, I, I know I'm not doing it for a good reason. I know I'm not doing it for a healthy reason. I know it's not even going to work out, but I'm still going to do it. You at least owe it to yourself to be honest with yourself. So decision number one, I'm not going to lie to myself even if it makes me feel bad about myself. You have to make that decision if you're ever going to become great at leading yourself. You want to lead that American you look at in the mirror every morning. You want to grow. You want to improve. You want to be who God created you to be. You have to start right there with being truthful with yourself. Then the second decision is this. I will prioritize what I value most over what I want now. I'm going to choose. I'm deciding. I will prioritize what I value most over what I want now. And those two, if you're anything like me, are rarely the same. Simple example. What you want most is to be happy, healthy, and if you're a female, skinny. What you want now is the same thing I want now, that chocolate pie. What you want most and what you want now always conflict. They are rarely ever the same. You've got to make a decision. That's a simple example, but this applies to everything. You've got to make a decision. I'm going to value what I want most over what I want now. Now, this assumes something. This assumes you know what you value most. And you may or may not. But you need to figure it out. You need to start thinking about, okay, when I get to the end of my life, what are the things that really are going to matter? What are the things that I'm going to look back and say, that's what I should have valued all along. That stuff didn't really matter. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, here's the good news. You have a blank slate clean sheet of paper. You just get to choose whatever values you want. There's nothing wrong with that. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this has to a large extent been defined for us because Jesus showed up and he said, here are the things you ought to value. You ought to value a life that's not about you. It's about the you beside you. A life where you're part of something bigger than you. A life where you are giving yourself away for the benefit of other people. A life where you are invested in serving others more than yourself. You ought to give your life away and invest your life and value most. Loving people the way I have loved you. That's what Jesus said. You got to show up in every situation and figure out how to serve one another humbly in love. You got to value things like kindness and love and joy and compassion and generosity. I mean, he, he not only defined them for us, but he lived them out and modeled them for us pretty clearly. Now, some of you, and I get this, I've heard this before, and I understand where this is coming from. Some of you may go, yeah, but the stuff that Jesus valued, all that stuff like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, all that stuff, that's just soft. That's just soft. To which I would say to you, no. Those values that Jesus had and modeled led him to hang on a Roman cross where he was covered in his own blood and bodily fluids. There was nothing soft about it. They're actually incredibly difficult to live out. But they are culture-changing and they are life-changing when somebody does them. So you got to figure out whose values you're going to live by. 
and then decide I'm going to prioritize what I value most over what I want now. Now, I would make the argument that the things that Jesus said to value are actually the things that you most want in the long run. Because if you fast forward and think about your funeral, or if you think about funerals you've been to, at funerals it becomes crystal clear what really matters and what really doesn't in life. Have you noticed that? It's interesting, you may not be at as many funerals as I'm at because of my job, but it's interesting to me to show up to funerals, and there's some funerals where there's a lot that's said, there's a lot of people that want to talk. They talk about the relationships, they talk about how this person invested so much in them and how they made a difference in so many lives. It's like everybody's got a story. Those are incredible funerals to be at. What they're really talking about is, here are the things this person valued, and every day they lived out and prioritized what they valued most over what they wanted now. And then I show up at other funerals, and it's like pulling teeth to get anybody to say anything. Nobody wants to be disrespectful, nobody's unkind, but nobody's got a story. And they'll talk a little bit about their work, and they'll talk a little bit about, well, they were successful here, they accomplished this. But you know, because you've been there, any funeral you go to, where the, the majority of the conversation is around the resume of the person, that is a red flag, isn't it? Doesn't matter how successful they were. It's a red flag. When you get to the end of your life, you don't want everybody sitting around talking about your resume, your honors, your accomplishments. You know what you want them saying about you. Those are the things that you value most. But you have to make an intentional decision, I'm going to prioritize what I value most over what I want right now, or what you want right now will always derail and undermine what's really most important. If you're going to lead yourself well, you've got to figure out how every day to get better and better and better at doing this. And then the final decision I want to share with you is this one. I will not attempt to lead myself by myself. Because that always ends in a train wreck. Now, always, I get a lot of pushback from people, particularly guys, but some ladies, but a lot of guys, it seems, whenever I talk about this idea. Because there's some of us who are just so independent and so type A wired that we just think we can handle this and we can solve this and I can fix whatever's in me and I can make sure I'm, take, I'm, you know, I'm good. But your own experience proves you can't lead yourself by yourself. For example... Think about some of your past regrets, your past regrets. Here's what I know. I don't even have to know you. Here's what I know about your past regrets. None of your past regrets, in all probability, were done in isolation. In other words, you don't tell a story that involves just you. Your past regrets always involve someone else. And here's what's so unique about it. Your past regrets involve people that at the time you made those decisions, you considered and called them friends. They were friends that you had common interest with. Here was the problem. You didn't have common values. And the values of the people that were surrounding you influenced and impacted the decisions you made and caused you to make choices that violated what you valued most then, or what, looking back now, given some experience and wisdom, you realize you should have valued the most. This is the importance of surrounding ourselves with people who value the same things that we value, because you just can't lead yourself by yourself, and neither can I. You were not created to live in isolation. You were created to live with the support of a community who values most what you value. you got to have that. And if you don't have that, it is only a matter of time before you lie to yourself and prioritize what you want now over what you value most. You've got to have some people in your life who are going to call you out when that happens.
You've got to have some people in your life who are going, nope, I think you're deceiving yourself. I don't think that's the real reason. Because even though we're all adults now, our friends still influence the quality and the direction of our lives. So you've got to surround yourself with the right people. This is why for those of you who attend here and are around here a lot, you hear me talking about how sitting in rows listening to me speak, well, that, that may be fun or that may be interesting or that may be somewhat helpful, but circles are much better than rows. That's why we talk about, you know, if you're not in a group, you ought to get in a group because that is a habit and a system you're putting in your life where every week you're surrounding yourself with people who value most the same things you want to value. And if you're in a group where that's not the case, you should find a different group because you need those kinds of relational supports and so do I. Now, if I could take two minutes here and take a little aside, I want to talk to those of you who are parents for just a second because this is so important. I think you get this, but if you're a parent, This is so important for your preschooler, your elementary kid, and your middle and high schooler as your children get older. It is so important, even as they're an adult. But while they're living in your home and under your care, it is so important that you, number one, model what this looks like for your child, for your student. And then number two, help put them in environments where they are surrounded by people who value most the things that you want your student or your child to value most. Here's what I see over and over again just in the line of work I'm in. I watch parents who have good intentions about the kind of child they want to have and how they want to raise them and the values they want to instill. They have great intentions. They just don't align their decision-making and how they use their time with their intentions. And then their student gets to be 15 or 16 or their student graduates and goes off to college and all of a sudden they have an attitude you can smell from three miles away and they want nothing to do with faith or church and there's all kinds of conflict between them and mom and dad and we get calls and emails at the office going help 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 I don't know what's going on can you fix my kid to which I'm like no I can't fix your kid I don't have a wand that's a kid fixer like I I don't know how you do that and we do everything we can to support but the reality is this Over a course of years, they made choices. They said, oh, no, no, this is what I want them to value most, but they made choices based on what they or their child wanted now and just assumed what they valued most would somehow get caught along the way, but their kids didn't see them model it. Their kids didn't watch them making choices that guided towards it. And then they're shocked when their child, their student grows up and suddenly doesn't value the things they hoped they would value. And they wonder, well, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's something to do with the church or maybe it's something to do with, you know, these people. No, no, the teachers at school, no. It's just you had a parenting philosophy and a family system and dynamic that didn't reinforce what you actually wanted them to value most. So as a parent, you should spend some time thinking about that. You should spend some time writing down, here are the values that I want my child to have one day. Here's what I want them to value most. Here's the things I want them to care about. Here's the kind of character I want them to have. And then you ought to evaluate the way you're using your time and money currently. And are you making decisions as a family with your time and money that are reinforcing, teaching, and supporting those values and moving them in that direction? One of the things I love about our kids and our student ministries around here is that we have built everything around this concept of putting other adults and other students in the lives of your kids who value most the things you want your kid to value most. And if all you do is show up consistently on Sunday, or all you do is have your high schooler in our inside-out environment on Wednesday nights, 
You've already gone a long way because you're putting them in an environment with people who value the things that you want your student to value and are reinforcing the message you're trying to communicate. But you have to take advantage of that. You've got to be willing to show up consistently and put them in those environments where they get that. My wife and I, we have taken advantage of this from day one with our kids, and they're only five and six now. But from the beginning, we have put them in these environments, in these preschool and elementary environments now, surrounded by some incredible people. And then we would invite, a lot of them would be college students or high school students who were engaged in helping out, and we would invite them to babysit, and we would invite them to show up for certain things we were doing because we wanted our kids around those people as much as possible to reinforce. So those, those leaders, those small group leaders could reinforce what we were trying to communicate. And it has made a world of difference. I'll tell you a quick personal story, and then we'll move on. So this afternoon, uh, we're doing another baptism bash. It's something we do for elementary kids that uh, make a decision to follow Jesus. We throw a big party uh, and they're, when we baptize them, and they invite all their family and friends, and it's a lot of fun. And this afternoon, we have a baptism bash, and my six-year-old daughter is getting baptized. She's so incredibly excited about it. And we sat down, we were talking with her, asking her, who are the people you want to thank, and who are the people who've helped you figure this out? And you know who she mentioned? She mentioned mom and dad. But then she started talking about all of her small group leaders that she's had. She mentioned small group leaders from takeoff and small group leaders she has now in 252. And I knew the minute I heard that, that's exactly what we want you to say. You have made connections with people who are reinforcing the things that we want to be reinforced in your life. If you're a parent, and I'll just move on, but if you're a parent and you don't take advantage of that, you're missing it. You're missing it. And one day, you know, you're going to send the email, or one day you're going to be talking to your friend going, I don't know what's going on with so-and-so. I don't know what to do now. So make the choices today to prioritize what you want most for your kid, not just what you want now. Okay, enough of that. Here's the thing. What we all want is ultimately to hand to the generation behind us. It doesn't matter how old you are. Ultimately, we all would say we want to hand to the generation behind us a united or reunited states of America. We want to hand to the generation behind us a country full of people who know what it looks like to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We want to hand to the generation behind us a community full of people who understand what it means to respect and honor and value people, even people who are different than us. We want to hand to the next generation a community and a country where there's no racism, no prejudice, no discrimination, and where people know how to disagree respectfully. But the only way that will happen is if you and if I model it and then teach it. Model it and then teach it. So my question to you is, will you do the hard work to lead yourself so you can model what you want the next generation to do? And then you can teach them how to do it too. And can I just remind you, there's a lot more at stake than what you may realize. If you're a parent, you got some kids who are looking in the mirror every day and they need to learn from you how not to lie to themselves even if it makes them feel bad about themselves. They need to learn from you how to prioritize what they value most over what they want now. And they need to learn from you that they can't lead themselves by themselves. If you're a single adult, you have some friends 
who are being impacted by who you are and how you handle your life every day. They're depending on you. They're going to be impacted by you. And if you're a single adult who wants to get married at some point, you have a future spouse out there somewhere who wants to one day marry a person who knows how to lead themselves well. So you owe it to your future spouse to become that kind of person. If you're married, you owe it to your spouse. Your spouse is impacted by your ability or lack thereof to look in the mirror and lead yourself well. So, will you do the hard work? And it is very hard work. Will you do the long work because there is no shortcut or quick fix? Will you commit to doing the hard work of leading that American you look at in the mirror every morning? Because you can't change everybody around you, but you can change you. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks first of all for not leaning away from us in the middle of our our messes, messes of our own doing, messes we've created, messes that we're totally responsible for, but you leaned in, you continue to lean in to serve us, to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness and peace and hope to us. We're so grateful for that. And would you give us the ability to help us become the kinds of people who can do the same, who can lean in towards people we find difficult, people who we disagree with, to lean in, and while we may not agree with all their opinions, we're still going to serve them humbly in love. We're still going to communicate to them the respect and the dignity and the worth that we find in them. And then would you help us to do the really hard work of leading ourselves well, of being honest with ourselves and owning what's going on inside of us, of not letting self-deception derail us. The hard work of making the choices are so difficult to make but choosing what we value most over what we want today. And help us to be wise enough to surround ourselves with people who value the things we value so that we, so that we don't end up isolated and derailed. Thanks for the people you place in our lives. Sometimes we take them for granted, but we are so, so grateful for them and the support they bring. And most of all, we're grateful for the strength you give and the ability you give us, the grace you give us, the power you give us to change the things in us that we cannot change on our own. And it's because of Jesus and in his name we pray. Amen.